As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Marriage? Ever again? I'm not a fan. (laughs) Um, I I didn't really like being a wife that much. I, I didn't like being referred to as somebody's wife. So instead, I'm a girlfriend and I'm kind of down for that. Welcome to U-Turns. This is the podcast where we talk about all things change. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. And we are here today with an old, old friend of mine and someone who means a lot to me. And when we had a conversation about her, before we even got started with this podcast, I remember you said to me, she needs to be on the show. She absolutely (laughs) needs to be on the show. And I realized that 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 was so true and that... um, that she's somebody who navigated a crazy life U-turn in a way that I- I've just never seen anyone deal with change and disruption in the way that she did. It's remarkable. We are joined today by Julie Metz, author of Perfection, a memoir of betrayal and renewal. Julie, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. So Jill knows your story. I only know it briefly because she told me about it, and it's really like a a one-two punch. Um, it's actually a one-two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine punch. <laughs> so many shifts and, and, and so many unpredictable events. Could you share a little bit with me and with our listeners? So, Because we don't know this story the way Jill and you do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I at the time when the uh, story begins, um, I was living in a small town, uh, with my husband of uh, about 15 years, and we had a young daughter. She was about six and a half. And we were living, you know, a very um, uh, kind of exurban life. You know, we had a very nice house. We had a swimming pool. You know, we had a view of the river. Um, I, I remember being very impressed yeah. when we visited. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I worked. The rest of us were living in shoeboxes yeah. now. <laughs> well, and it was sort of... Um, at the same time, I, I will say that I, I never felt quite at home um, there, 
not not just in the place, but in that house. Sometimes I think of it like that talking head song, you know, you'll wake up one day and find yourself in a beautiful house and you don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a bit like that. And I would have sort of uh, a feeling like that very often. Um, in January of 2003, on a very usual freezing cold January, it was a Wednesday, um, uh, my husband, who had been not feeling well for a few days, but, you know, he was 44, so you don't really think much about it, just that he was maybe had a cold or a bit of the flu. Um, he collapsed and died in front of me on our kitchen floor. I will say that um, that remains one of the most shocking events of, I... of my life, because even as I didn't quite process what was happening to me at the time it um um it there it was unfolding sort of like a nightmare um and then i spent 6 months um which jill might remember kind of in a daze i do i do remember yeah, it I just and i was, remember being at the funeral and seeing you and liza and you know at the time henry was you know he was a bit older than we were, but such a young guy. And we didn't know anyone who had lost their partner, let alone a partner at such a young age. How old were you then? I was 43, yeah. and he was 44. And I will say that, you know, I didn't know anyone either who had died at an age like that personally. I mean, it was just, um, uh, and it caused enormous upheaval you know, just that event in my life, but also in lives around me, you know, because there's nothing like uh, mortality <laughs> to oh. kind of, you know, freak everybody out. So yeah. that's, you know, kind of what what happened there. And How then, old was your daughter when your husband died? She was six and a half. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, I've done hard things in my life, but there was no day harder than having to tell her that her father had died. It was every parent's nightmare. You know, you send your child to school in the morning, and it happened at about two in the afternoon. I had her picked up by a friend, and then the friend brought her home later, and I had to tell her, and it was just, really, there was, it was just the the, the harshest thing I've ever had to do. And, um, and that includes everything that happened later. <laughs> so, um, Six months after he died, um, the proverbial other shoe dropped when revelations came to light um, that he had been involved in a quite long affair with a woman in my town. She was also the mother of my daughter's best friend. It was like suburban nightmare. <laughs> um, and um, uh, then, of course is when, the, you know, the, the real unpacking began. And um, it sort of caused me to have to look at my life and my marriage and, you know, assess what had been real, what wasn't real, and, you know. You also couldn't even grieve properly because on top of all the sadness and loss, you are now angry. So angry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as you say in your book... You wanted to kill Henry, but he was already dead. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's 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 an awful thing to sort of 
yeah. laugh at now, but what a cosmic joke. Yes, it was, um, I recall sort of having strange conversations with him um, sort of in the house where I would kind of have private rants while I was in the kitchen cooking. <laughs> but it was sort of an argument with, you know, with the air. You know, I couldn't really, um, there was no satisfaction because I couldn't, you know, he wasn't there. Um, at the same time, what happened next would never have been possible um, if it weren't that he had died. I mean, that I was able to um, look at his correspondence and his journals in a way that I think most women who would find themselves in my situation would never have access to. And he had left voluminous correspondence. He with, was a writer. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and it was a different time, I guess I'll say. Um, he wasn't um, very careful. He, he didn't seem, you know, he had very little computer security. So there was really... Uh, it, it was all kind of right there. The, what had happened was that right after he died, there were six people who were in the home who were there to make sure that I ate and slept and that Liza ate and slept. And um, they also were the people who started planning a memorial. So it all had to happen, you know, un unlike in a situation where someone, say, is ill and you sort of know that something's coming. This all happened um, in a few days. Those people went to look in his computer to get his address book. And when they did, they saw all these folders sitting right on the desktop. And emails were popping in, you know, and it was became very clear. You'd never looked at his computer Never. Because I'm the type of person who's like, hey, give me your phone. And I'll, when I'm bored, I'll just scroll through my husband's emails. Never. And I have to say, I do that too. I mean, <laughs> I am a child of divorce, not for nothing. Yeah, really? And while wow. I have very deep trust in my husband, Robert, and he has looked at me and laughed when he hands the phone over, you know, I, I, I'll do it. I'll do it occasionally. Yeah. That's so interesting because um, I, I never did it and I never wanted to do it. And um, I think because I sort of felt, you know, I, I sort of think of computers are sort of an extension of, you know, of your brain and your soul, and that it would have felt incredibly intrusive to do that, and I just didn't want to go to that place. And I still don't want to go to that place, so I, I don't look at um Yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't say I feel proud when I do this. No, I, I think I don't it's mind. a natural <laughs> urge. Yeah, I yeah. do it in front of him. I'm not secretly yeah, me going. Too. Me too. Yeah. I mean, what's funny is that I, I know my partner's password for his iPhone. Sometimes when we're driving, I might use his phone to do the map questing. Yeah. But I don't look at anything else. I just open up his iPhone and go to MapQuest. But, mm -hmm. you know, I have no, I just feel like there, that's a, a world I. I don't know. I, I, yeah. It, so, it, despite everything that happened, um, I I think these are just there are people who do and people <laughs> who don't, and you just sort of fall on one side or another. And even after what's happened to you, you are still a person who doesn't. Do you do you think though that on some level Henry wanted you to find this evidence? I do. I really do. I think he was in a lot of trouble, psych you know, psychically. By the time he died, I, and I also 
um, in thinking about it over the years, I don't really see his death, which was a sort of sudden medical catastrophe, um, as as random as a random act in the way that it felt on well, that day. Remind us what it was. It he, was a, a yeah, it was a pulmonary, pulmonary embolism, yeah. which is um, when a, there's a blood clot and it comes through. Usually, it's in the leg, and then it comes up and lodges in the lungs, and it causes cardiac arrest. One of the reasons that it can happen is if you've been flying a lot and you don't get up to walk around while you're in flight. And I think he was exhausted. And I think a lot of these cross-country flights that he made, and he made one shortly before he died, um, he was so exhausted that I think he just slept in a stupor the entire way back. Um, but you think he, in some ways, I think was, he was leaving the breadcrumbs out for you? I think he was overwhelmed by what he had done, and it was um, clear as I described sort of toward the end of the book, I encountered, uh, I, I talked with a woman who had met him at a party, and he was clearly trying to confess, mm. and um, I think he just was so burdened by what he had what he had done to himself and done to his life, and I think he must have sensed that it was all going to unravel sooner rather than later. That's sort of how I look at it now. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue unraveling Henry's life and, and what else you discovered and how you processed that. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. We're back with Julie Metz, author of Perfection, a memoir of betrayal and renewal. Tell us, so it wasn't just the one friend and mother of your daughter's best friend that was an affair. This seemed to have been a pattern of behavior for him. Yeah, I think um, I would have to describe the behavior as sort of compulsive. Um, I think it must have come from a place of, I think he was a person who really wanted to be liked, and I think he was also a person um, um, who was able to compartmentalize his life um, in that so he had sort of little boxes for the different people in his life. I guess I was a box, and, you know, our daughter was a box, and our life that we had was, you know, was all in that box. But he was also able to engage with other people and and really almost transform himself to become a different person for those other people. 
You know, and, and what's so interesting to me is that once you learned about all these other boxes after he had died, you got out of your box and you went digging around in all those other boxes, which I think is is not, I mean, certainly anyone would be curious, but would they act on that curiosity? Would they want to speak to all those women as you did? You reached out to every single one you could find, right? Yeah, I I think what happened to me in thinking about it was was almost um I felt like I didn't understand my life anymore. I I couldn't figure out what was reality and what wasn't reality and um because I had access to this material I just started poking around very gently and then I will say that for a time it really became kind of an obsession. Yeah. Um I felt like I was becoming a researcher like a detective in my own life you know and i that i really needed to understand what had happened and what had happened to him and what had happened to us and that i hoped that in doing so i might find um some grace somewhere in all of this and be able to put my life back together mm-hmm. yeah. so you know it it does seem to me that it became an obsession but also it it did serve its purpose ultimately. Can you share with us a few of the the things that you uncovered in this detective period that really made a huge difference and unlocked you from where you were stuck? Um, of course, the first part of the correspondence that I uncovered was between him and the woman in my town with whom he'd had um, the the long affair. Um, there were other there was another woman in my town i think he'd met her at the gym and it had been a very brief thing when i contacted her we um we had a phone call and she was in tears through most of it and by the end of the call i felt like i was comforting her <laughs> and kind of i don't know just by the end of it i just felt like you know please go live your life and please don't think about it anymore. You know, it, it's, uh, we've, you know, we're, we're good here. Um, the other people that I... Even though some of these women didn't really apologize to you. Some of them did. Some, some of them, them did. Some of them didn't. Yeah. Um, there were far away people whom I never met, but we uh, communicated first by email and then in phone calls. And I was actually really struck by how forthcoming all, all these women were nobody nobody refused to talk to me i think they all understood that what had happened was you know was pretty messed up and and that that i deserved some kind of explanation one woman um it remains the most unlikely f- connection of my life um in in terms of like a a, a woman to woman connection um was the, a woman who had at one point been a dominatrix and then sort of through, I think I think our, I call it a friendship, um, kind of her life changed, my life changed. Every, you know, we're still, every once in a while, we'll get in touch, have a few emails. I don't know, I always feel like we worked through a thing and we wish each other well, mm-hmm. and that helped me a lot, just kind of understand and also, she could tell me things that I had no other way to find out. I think there were times um, it, he met her 
when um, he was working on this book and he was out West, um, there were times, I think, when he was talking to me on his cell phone and she was sitting next to him in, in the car. You know, so I think she saw things and experienced things and had kind of firsthand experience of what was going on in a way that in a way that I did not. So you were able to have some kind of resolution with these women, something that you were never able to have. So you could, with Henry, because you could, you could almost forgive them. Like you said with that one woman on the phone, you wished her well and all of, all of the, the drama around your relationship with them seemed to be put to bed. Without having Henry there to talk to him and to process it and to question him, were you ever able to put that to bed too? Were you ever able to forgive Henry? It took a while, I will say. It took some years because the first years of my widowhood were were just so difficult. I mean, on on a Wednesday afternoon, I went from being, you know, uh, an ex-urban wife to a widow and a single mother. And boy, do I appreciate how hard it is to be a single mother. I did it for uh, just a little under two years, and I bow down, you know, to women who have to raise their children from zero to adult um, on their own. So it was very difficult. Although, I mean, I have to say, from having known you um, and known you and Henry as a couple, you were kind of the primary parent. But I guess there's a huge difference. I mean, I know there's a huge difference between being the primary with a backstop and being the only one. I think that's exactly right, is that even when when you're doing um, a lot of the work, you know, to not have anyone to, you know, to cover for you uh, is you, you feel it right away. Yeah. And, and also just the making of decisions. You know, usually you make your decisions around, you know, where your, your child's going to go to school or, or every other thing that you have to do. You might make that with your partner and suddenly— I had to make those decisions on myself by myself, and I had no faith in my ability to make decisions. <laughs> it's also very yeah. lonely. Yeah, you know, even when you don't have the perfect partner, it's it's a teammate, right? You know, it's better to play tennis with a your doubles partner that's a mediocre tennis player than yeah. The backboard you know, doesn't help no. you decide which school <laughs> no. is going to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But back to Lisa's question originally. Mm. Sorry, I, I got a sidetracked. What's what was the where are you now with forgiveness all these years later as it you know as it pertains to Henry? Yeah, I would say that in many ways it was the process of writing the book um but um that kind of got me to that place. Um at a certain point I came to see what had happened to him as a tragedy. You know, he he lost his life and he lost the ability to raise his child. Um and I could only see it as tragic, you know, that it wasn't. Um, and then I think when, when that shift happened, um, I felt my anger kind of dissipate. Um, another big factor was when I met Will in the book. Um, and he, he was, you know, when I met him, he was, I was still pretty angry. <laughs> um, and one point he, he said to me, you know, you know, you really have to, try to forgive him or else we're never going to be able to move forward as a couple. And I really took that to heart and um, tried, I really worked at it to try to get to a place. 
it, there's no question that if you hold on to anger like that, it, it will kill you. You, know, mm. you really can't live like that. Mm. It's interesting because I know you feel like what Henry was suppressing had some, on some level, some role in his, in his death. So it's interesting to hear you phrase it like that, that not forgiving him could actually destroy destroy you as a human being yeah, as I mean, well. You yeah. can't be happy and, you, you know, you can't yeah. enjoy what you have, which is your life. I mean, that I was alive and able to move forward. And, you know, it's, I will say, I mean, it's, the years were difficult. There have been many challenges since, you know, it, it's been nothing but sort of different kinds of challenges uh, ever since he died. But I, you know, I, do feel now that I I have a co-pilot. I mean, I have a partner who's really been uh, very solid, and that's helped a lot with sort of overcoming the you know and the last of that anger. I I don't feel I never feel angry towards him now. Yeah, he had to have had a lot of guilt himself too, right? I mean, that one silver lining, if there is one in this, is that it was clearly not about you. It was clearly a deep issue of his own and his own insecurities. And so, uh, you know, whenever we someone betrays us, we think, what could I have done differently? What did I do wrong? How am I inadequate? And it's very clear that this man had, had a, I don't know if you'd call it a sex addiction, addiction but... Certainly a compulsion. A compulsion, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I re- I think that, you know, the way I've thought about it when I talk about those little boxes, I think that for him, I feel like with each of these women, he got to sort of start all over and be a different person. Mm-hmm. And he could, you know, especially this was revealed in the emails that I read. I almost didn't recognize this person. He I was, didn't recognize yeah. the voice in those emails. And I, I just remember being completely bewildered. He spoke to them in in his correspondence in a way that he never spoke to me, ever. Did you understand him better through reading all of his emails? I did. I mean, it 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 was, uh, in the beginning, it was so bewildering. I remember just being um, utterly confused. I didn't recognize the person whose correspondence I was reading. I had no idea, you know, I couldn't figure out what was real about our relationship and our marriage. And it did take a while until I finally concluded that, um, that, that he, when he was with us, he was with us. And then when he was with these other people, he was with them. I do think that toward the end of his life, guilt, anxiety, the, the fear of everything unraveling, um, I think must have just been an incredible burden. When we come back, we're going to find the wisdom that Julie can share with all of us from her experience. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public, the list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, the real danger is in your hand when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
Do you ever wish that you hadn't found out? Are there times when you would have preferred to be just the grieving widow and moved on with your life and not known about all these women? I certainly would never wish on anybody what happened to me, but the answer is I'm glad that I found out. I think I would have um, lived the rest of my life um, in a kind of false grieving state for something that wasn't true. So it was excruciatingly painful. It was painful for a really long time, um, but I have no regrets about that. One of the things I think I always found interesting about this story, your story, is that when you went back, you also uncovered ways in which you wished you had been different in your relationship too. So it wasn't just outrage and anger. Can you talk a little bit about sort of where you found your own behavior, something you need to learn from? Yeah, I think, again, because I had the the ability to sort of unpack the whole situation, it, it wasn't long before I did start to look back and reassess and think about times. You know, I would look at the dates of an email. Sometimes he was writing about me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and realize that, you know, it, dysfunction takes two. So there, there was clearly a lot more going on. It wasn't just him. And that also helped me get to the forgiving place, was realizing that we had just been really poorly matched as people and that we weren't, we weren't bringing out the best in each other and that I had my own role to play in that and that um, I wanted to try and do differently, you know, in, in the new life that I made for myself. You know, none of us are perfect. It's not like relationships are hard. We all know that, especially long relationships are always going to be full of challenge. But, um, but I never wanted to be in that kind of situation so miserable and uh, unhappy as I was in our last years together. How, how did you learn to trust again? Not just other people, but also your own judgment. Because you married Henry, and he was the same person when you married him. You just weren't aware of it. So how did you say, okay, I'm, this guy's all right because my my spidey sense is working? <laughs> it was just on the fritz. Yeah, it was on the fritz. Some people laugh when I tell them this, but I made a list of qualities I was looking for, and they weren't the qualities that I was looking for when I was 27 and I met Henry. And at the top of the list was kindness and and, and sort of straightforwardness. Um, I met a guy from the Midwest, and I can highly recommend them. <laughs> <laughs> they, they just have, you know, a different way than, you know, us, you know, neurotic New Yorkers. And it was so different. His way was so different that I think that was immediately uh, reassuring. It took a long time for me to trust my own instincts. It really, I think, in a way, that was the hardest thing to come to grips with was that, you know, I could, I, that to sort of reestablish reality baseline. Here's, this thing is real, this isn't real, you know, and, and sort of understand 
be able to look at things around me and assess relationships. And that included friendships, too. Yeah, because yeah. you, you were friends with Kathy, the the woman, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, you guys I mean, spent a lot of holidays together. And yeah, we, Do you look at friends differently now? Like, oh, I don't like her. I do. Friendships with women. Yeah, yeah I do. I do. I had to, you know, I would say, um, you know, I have— I have a high standard for women. I expect us to look after each other. Not sleep with each other's yeah, husbands. Yeah, <laughs> that's sort of pretty basic. And, um, you know, so... Let's all clear that bar, shall yeah, we? <laughs> yeah, and, and I And, you know, so much of our lives, you know, as women, you know, you get your, so much of your support from, from your friends. The, the people who helped me during this time just were amazing. Um, a, my college roommate... Flew from England, where she lives, and came and spent a week with me and kind of put me back together. And then there was a friend in a nearby town, um, and she—I always think of her as uh, the tough love. Like, when on the days when I was really wallowing and feeling super sorry for myself, and uh, she just would, you know, kind of snap me out of it and remind me that I had stuff to do and I had to— do my work and be a good parent and, you know, get it together was kind of the message. Yeah. Um, so I was super grateful for those women who really uh, supported me. So interesting that you had, you know, you were confronted with women you knew and didn't know who had, by extension, betrayed you and women who were just going the extra mile at exactly the same time in your life. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned, there was this one woman whom I encountered you know, um, on the phone and online, who really um, did become uh, very supportive to me. And uh, I'm not a, a very woo-woo person, but I always <laughs> felt like there really was something, you know, she lived very far away and that there really was something coming through the phone line, some kind of energy, and that it was authentic. Um, I, I think, you know, for me, the the quest after this happened was to be able to see authenticity and and have a sense of, um, you know, is this person being straight with me or not straight with me? It, it's not like it ever ends in that you continue to encounter people who disappoint you. And, um, but I, I guess I um, uh, least needed to reestablish my confidence in being able to deal with people as friends professionally and then, of course, in my intimate life and feel that I could um, make a life with somebody else. Marriage ever again? I'm not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like um, uh, Will and I have been together now for 14 years um, and uh, I like what we have. Um, I feel like uh, I I didn't really like being a wife that much. I I didn't like being referred to as somebody's wife. So instead, I'm a girlfriend, and I'm kind of down for that. Mm-hmm. So um, I I feel like it keeps us on our toes. You know, we don't have the the depth of paperwork linking us together. So I feel like we have to try it all the time, you know, to, it's not like we haven't had challenges. Of course we have, but 
I feel like it kind of keeps us fresh. I don't know. Um, well, Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. It's so great to reconnect with you. And if you want to connect with Julie, all of our listeners, do that at juliemetz.com. And you can connect with us at New Turns Podcast. Share your stories. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.